Hello, friends. We're back of episode 99 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. I don't quite have the bandwidth for year 1999 trivia, so we're just going to have fun with the episodes we usually do. But first of all, thanks for your patience, everybody. Um, Our Weekly had a slightly unexpected week off last week, but we're back at it again with our current issue. But of course, back at it, I can't go back at it myself. I got to bring my awesome co-host, Mike Thomas, with me. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Eric. And uh, if you don't have any trivia, could you give me the jersey number of the great one? Oh, I have to think hard about this. I only watch hockey since I was you know, eight years old. Is it 99? You got it. Well, oh, Gretzky yes. Himself. yes. So I'll give you an assist there. That, that, that's, that's good that my, my, my knowledge of hockey trivia is still, still up there. We are one shy of the centennial. Pretty exciting. That is right. That is right, everybody. It's hard to believe, but we're, we're going to get there, and we'll have a lot to talk about then. But um, we can't not talk about the current issue, so we're going to dive into that. And our curator this week is Sam Palmer. And thank you, Sam, for another excellent issue from your curation efforts. And as always, he had great help from our fellow Our Weekly team members and contributors like you all around the world. And let's start with a topic that when I think about, I almost feel like I'm looking in the mirror a little bit because ever since my early days of getting into statistics, first through my graduate school days and then through my initial years of the day job, I never felt like the classic statistician, if there's such a phrase. I was always getting deep into some really neat technical rabbit holes and custom solutions that they don't quite teach you in a textbook in grad school or undergrad or things like that. Well, our first highlight comes from Miles McBain, who I think has probably had some similar experiences because his latest post on his microblog talks about, is there such a thing as a data scientist or engineer? It's both software development and data science. I feel very much um, that kind of lifestyle, especially what I've been doing lately. And for what Miles talks about here is that it's one thing to be an expert at, you know, implementing your models or your predictions and everything and your, you know, quote unquote data science part of the job. But the tooling in front of that is just as important. Certainly we try to leverage a lot of the external tools to make our life easier, whether it's packages from the R or Python ecosystems, or even just how we write our code, especially how we balance different projects at the same time. And this is where it gets really fun to look at. Have you heard about that thing called VS Code? I've talked about it a little bit in my previous live stream adventures, but apparently it's got some really neat features to help make this multi-project lifestyle a lot easier to develop on if you're into data science with some of this innovative tooling. And so the blog post has a lot more details on it, but what's a really neat feature of VS Code is that you're not locked to just one R session per project. You could have as many of these as you want. You could even have some of these spun up on say an external server, maybe an HPC cluster, maybe a fancy AWS instance. And you can, you can link different project files that you have open via this technique called workspaces. 
kind of like a way of organizing related files together and be able to route certain code to certain sessions and be able to share them back and forth. This is mind blowing technology that I felt like I knew, but I don't know as well as Miles does for sure. So it makes me seriously think as I hop between say a project of a shiny app and then a project of a package that's doing the machine learning for the shiny app and I'm making changes in one and I got to cognitively shift to the other one. How do I make that as less painful as possible? Well, VS Code certainly seems to have a lot of inroads to making that a lot easier for people like me and Miles and, and I dare say many others in the world here that have to kind of bootstrap some additional tooling to help get their job done. And they want to make that as easy as possible. So the blog post has more details on how all this works. Um, but Miles has always been one of the power users of uh, VS Code over the years. So I'm always intrigued whenever he writes an interesting tutorial around these efforts. But I'm definitely going to be trying out some of these techniques when the dust settles a little bit in my projects. Yeah, it's an excellent blog post. And, and Miles kind of sets the stage with a use case, uh, like, like you had mentioned, Eric, where you know, you're working on some sort of data analysis pipeline right? That's, that's running, but all of a sudden hits a bug and you find a bug in this pipeline. And the, the bug is related to this other package that you've developed internally that gets used in that pipeline. And he says, you know, typically what you'd have to do is at our project open with the pipeline, um, you have to create a reprex reproducible example and then take that over to the repository with the package, open that our project up that contains the package and, and try to go through sort of the traditional debugging process with that reprex. But with VS Code and this concept of workspaces, if I'm understanding it correctly, you could have both of these different R projects open simultaneously. And typically if you're doing that in our studio, that means two different R sessions. But I think you could actually point both of these R projects to the same R session if you wanted to. So you could sort of debug on the fly without having, you could debug the package on the fly in the same session where you're experiencing debug in the pipeline. So you don't have to create that reprex and you can be sure that you're, you're solving that bug sort of in the same, same session environment um, where it's occurring, which is, I think, a really powerful uh, argument for, for how VS Code can help you in your development workflow. Um, Miles quotes, you can send code from any project file to any R terminal. And he has some great screenshots showing how uh, you can have multiple R projects open simultaneously with multiple R sessions attached um, using this concept of, of VS Code workspaces, which is something I didn't know about um, before this was so really cool to, to highlight that and attach a use case to it. You know, that, that higher level question, are we data scientists or, or software developers is, is a big one that I have run into many times in the past, Eric. And it, it sometimes, uh, it is difficult for people outside of the space to understand that, you know, in my humble opinion, at least to, to be a good data scientist, you must also be a good software developer. And it, it really hurts me when I hear team leaders say sometimes, which I've heard in the past, not naming any names, but 
they say, oh yeah, we write our code on our team, but we're not, we're not developers. Um, because I think then you're, you're not necessarily caring about ensuring that the, the product of that R code that you have written is, is a rigorous product, if you will, and something robust and something that you should be making decisions upon. Um, and, and I think software development practices help to provide confidence in that. And I know that's a conversation we've had many, many times online and, and offline on the podcast. So I'm always willing to have it and, and great to see uh, more blog posts discussing that topic in, in differing ways. So huge kudos to, to Miles for putting this blog post together. I have about one foot, one and a half feet into VS Code. I got to I gotta dive two feet in on my next project, yeah, I think. So I, um, maybe I'll, I'll try definitely to know the feeling of hearing others experience. just feel like you're writing that code, whether it's ours, some other language that starts with three letters. You're just you're just getting an output done. That's all. You don't have to care about how you got there. But I, I take runs. you know, I take pride in how I build these things. Like I don't want to hand off like a, a package or an app that looks like a spaghetti mess of like 2000 lines in one file and no comments. And, you know, there's, there's, there's an art to this. And also with that art, you can take advantage of the tooling to make that best practice implementation easier. And that's where it's so different now than maybe it was when some of us are starting out that we kind of had to do all these manually, but now you get these wrappers like use this and dev tools and some of the great, you know, hidden, you know, functionality that Shiny exposes for JavaScript interactions. Like there's all these in these, these neat ways to enhance your productivity, both in the project itself, but then of course we've, we've been talking about VS code to just make your life easier to manage these different complexities, searching for that bug, interacting with multiple projects. It, it's really neat to see this becoming, I think more I don't want to say acceptable, but we're hearing a lot more talk about it than maybe we did maybe 10 years ago or so. Absolutely. And that, that's a great thing. I agree. Yes. And um, speaking of great things, you know, Mike and I always think talking about shiny is a great thing. And a lot of times, especially for someone like me, who's literally about to give a workshop on some of my shiny ideas in a couple of days, you always try to think, what are some ways that you can communicate kind of the overall picture? You might say the big picture and how all this is networked together. Well, if you like your pictures, you'll like our next highlight. So, uh, Mike, what, what got your attention visually, what we're about to talk about here? No, this is a, a great introductory blog post on Shiny for those who are new to the concepts uh, from Kasima Meyer, who's being featured again this week, which is awesome to see. And Kasima provides some some really excellent um, takeaways beyond just this sort of introduction to how the UI and the server come together to create a shiny app. And some of her takeaways that really spoke to me are uh, make sure that you're sketching your app out first on paper, pencil, paper, Excaladraw, if uh, you are a fan of uh, web tools as well. And this is all something called wireframing and so wireframing your app is the process of actually just sketching it out by hand first and putting your different containers where you think that they should go and your charts are going to go over here my tables are going to go over here maybe i'll have a tab set and some some cards at, at the top and, and going through that process is really important because if you don't 
it, it can lead to a lot of debugging in the UI, in my experience of trying to get what's in your head uh, into code without having that sort of intermediary visual map of it right in front of you. So highly recommend, I'll, I'll second Cosima's uh, recommendation there. She also, I feel like this blog post was, was written uh, to speak to my heart. She highlights the eCharts for R package for interactive visualization, which is my favorite interactive R package, um, interactive data visualization R package that I use in pretty much every Shiny app I create. Uh, she talks about thinking through the complexity of your Shiny app and, and how these things can get very complex, very quick. So keep it as simplistic as possible. And if you start to feel like you are introducing a lot more complexity, maybe it's time to, to look at the Gollum package to be able to modularize your app um, a little bit better, which, you know, I don't know if, if anybody's who's ever listened to probably more than 15 seconds of this, this podcast before <laughs> has heard us rant about how much we love the Gollum package and uh, a couple other recommendations she throws out is the, I believe new uh, shiny UI editor package, which allows you to, I believe manipulate UI components in a live shiny app that sort of spits out the code on the back end. You are absolutely right. That is by uh, Nick Strayer on the shiny team. And I've been playing with that a bit as I start sketching out some new new layouts and it's it's a great complement to that wireframing principle actually it's very cool excellent so i need to check that out asap and then maybe the the last thing that she puts at the bottom of the blog post is this really cool infographic that kind of looks like a cheat sheet it looks a lot like those r studio cheat sheets um, that they have for different packages but it's it's a cheat sheet for the mental model of how shiny works um, and you can download that as a pdf right from her blog post. So, so definitely check that out. What sort of spoke to you in this blog post, Eric? Oh, there's a lot here. Um, but first, I, you opened the door. I'm going to say my catchphrase here. Once you go golem, you never go back. There, checks in the mail, Colin. Um, but <laughs> yes, um, I, you know, I think when, when we talk about you know, how do we illustrate the ins and outs of how Shiny works, especially to those new to it, you probably would agree with me though on the most difficult concepts is how reactivity really is in the big picture. So seeing this carrier pigeon uh, analogy was really interesting where, yes, we're going to send something to the server. We're going to give it in the mail and then we're only going to ask for it when the user wants it. And it's just going to be ready for you, but it's not going to be eager about it. So I'm going to do the work it needs to. So I really like that that analogy. And boy, I wish I'd had something like this when I was trying to explain it to, there were like summer interns at our, at our group a couple of years ago that were tasked to do shiny and they had never done it before. So it took a little bit of time to train them up on, you know, this is the, the idea of how it works, but things like this to get you into that, you know, at least comfortable to start building something even if it's certainly small at first, that is still better than being, you might say, drowned in like all these different concepts kind of flowing in your head at once. So being able to take bits and pieces of it and knowing kind of how everything fits together is extremely helpful. So I really like the reactivity 
analogy um, for sure. And yeah, the the graphic in general is really, really top notch and will be great for those learning this the first time. And yes, I'm going to send some of the e-charts for R2. That is one of my favorites as well. So John Cohen's done an excellent job with that. So highly recommend that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe there can't be enough blog posts, concepts about teaching shiny out there, right? There, there's the, the mastering shiny book. I think there's some alternative ways that that reactivity gets explained through this carrier pigeon analogy and everybody learns in different ways, right? Mm -hmm. So, so what speaks to someone in one blog post or book might be different than what speaks to someone else in a different blog post or book. So I, I definitely appreciate that uh, casino with kind of a, a unique take on some of the things that she's trying to teach in this blog post. Yeah. And she's done a lot of these interesting blog posts, especially recently that her, her blog is a good one to follow as well. And um, yeah, I'm excited to see what else she cooks up with creative visualization. So between her and Allison Horse uh, visualizations, we're, we're covered for awesome uh, orange shiny concepts that are illustrated. And so to round out the highlights today, and again, it kind of takes me back to days where you get some data and sometimes you get some messy data. And sometimes you're not quite sure how to handle taking advantage of some of the newer tooling and data processing, say from the tidyverse and family of packages to get into a format that's more ready for analysis. Well, they didn't just talk about it. They did demos of this. And I'm talking about our friends over at the TidyX screencast, Ellis Hughes and Patrick Ward. They had taken a user submitted um, data set or at least an example of a data set where the user said, here's how the data is coming in from these clinical practitioners. You can see it's got a little messiness to it. And then he said, this is what I'm looking for. What is the best way to approach creating this? Well, that's where both um, Ellis and Patrick took slightly different approaches to solve this problem. And it was interesting to see, they both get to the same results. So of course they're kind of validating what each other did. But it just goes to show you that sometimes the way you you illustrate the concepts through code can also explain things differently. And they're both good approaches. Patrick's approach is a little more deliberate, a little more, you, you could say verbose, but sometimes I think as you're getting to know how a package works or a set of packages works to achieve this you know, desired you know, end goal, I think that's a great way to learn. It's kind of like narrating through code the different steps. Alice then supercharges his methodology by taking advantage of some really neat hooks to manipulating column names in a um, vectorized way combined with the very powerful regular expression syntax, which sometimes still gives me the shivers a little bit. But it was good to see Alice really nail that down and explain why he put what looks like cryptic syntax in some of those search terms, but he was able to nail it with a very concise set of codes. So it's a quick watch. It's only about 25 minutes or so, but it's a great showcase to see both of them narrate through their solutions and how they got there, what things did they check for and what they see in their real practice that mimics uh, similar approaches. So really good watch and um, enjoyed seeing that. And it took me back 
to my uh, biomarker processing days when the lab said, here's your spreadsheet, we're done. I'm like, oh no. And then the fun begins. So luckily we have tools now to make that fun, a little fun at least. Mike, what did you think about this uh, data processing magic here? I think we all have some traumatic data wrangling experiences prior to discovering the tidyverse. Um, and I mean, regular expressions, they've been around for so long and so many programming languages have evolved, changed, died, been replaced. Regex still, it's still here. Hasn't been replaced. Pretty wild. You can't keep a good regex down, can you? No, no. It's, it looks like wingdings, but it when it works, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, the, the, one of the first things that, that I thought as this video kicked off was like, could you imagine doing all of this data wrangling ETL in Excel? Like, I could not. You just have to have nested formulas or, or sub-columns along the way that you would need to reference until you got to your final final output, it would be an absolute mess. Um, so this is my thank goodness for the tidyverse. Um, Thanksgiving's coming up and that's, that's what I'm giving thanks for ahead of time. But <laughs> Ellis and Patrick, I've seen a few of their screencasts now and they, they do a great job at explaining really practical R concepts, I think on a week to week basis. I actually watched their, their screencast on S3 objects and object-oriented programming in R a little while back, just as a refresher for myself. And it's, it's just fantastically explained concepts by them. And this particular screencast has everything you could ever want if you are a data wrangling connoisseur like myself. Uh, there is use of dpliers across function, regular expressions, pivot longer and pivot wider, uh, all of the best tidyverse utilities, and it's also, you know, always, in my opinion, great to have a nice mix of, of content in the highlights. And this one is a YouTube video as compared to the two other blog posts. So if you'd prefer to watch a video as opposed to a blog post, maybe start out with uh, start out with this highlight this week. Yeah, it was again an easy watch. And, you know, at 121 episodes in, they are they're definitely pros at this. So it's great to see that going and um yeah maybe i'll be as smooth talking as them someday who knows but um <laughs> i'll try i'll try but um yeah great watch i in fact um i mean i shared this a few weeks ago i think but their content around using um databases in shiny and, and other objects in shiny apps i actually used some of that idea in my workshop so it was really really cool to see that and i thank them thank those in person for that because i was really helping me out. So they have a whole bunch of tips there, both about Tidyverse, Shiny, like you said, getting the internals of how objects work. So great, great content there. And certainly hope they keep it going. And um, they got they got a little bit more episodes than us, but um, maybe someday we'll catch up. Who knows? <laughs> almost there. Almost there. Yep. But um, what's not almost, what is for sure is that this issue is jam-packed because frankly, this has almost two weeks worth of content. So you're going to have a lot to choose from other than what we've talked about here at the outset, but we'll do a little quick spotlight on some of the things that also caught our attention. And as I think about ways of managing dependencies, both at the R level, but also at the system level, well, I got to give a really big shout out to a good friend of the show, Peter Salimus, for his great um, new package called Depths, 
which is kind of like a wrapper for RMV, but also can fit really nicely in the creating Docker containers that are minimal, easy to reproduce, and are perfect for deploying shiny apps or even our Markdown or Cordal documents in a very agile way. And so I'm definitely gonna be checking this out as I start restructuring my uh, Docker, um, you might say um, slightly long Docker files, maybe make them a little more streamlined. Please don't judge me. I'm, I'm still new at some of this, but yes, it was um, a good, it's a, it's a great blog post that talks about how the package works. And I think it's a great step to making these deployments faster, more reproducible, and frankly, a lot easier to build. So highly recommend that blog post. And, uh, Mike, what did you find? Hey, if the, the Docker image is under two gigs, who cares what the Docker file looks like, right? But I will... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Um, I actually will, will, will break and highlight two instead of just one, um, just because we had like two weeks here, like you said, and there's just too much, too much content not to highlight a couple. Uh, first, Albert Rapp has a great post on potential replacement visualization ideas for paired bar charts or, or dual bar charts. And some of his uh, replacements include dumbbell plots, which I always forget about. So this was a great reminder that dumbbell plots exist and I should use them. Uh, and, and slope charts, which all have R code included. Um, and, and are fantastic visuals that he puts in his blog post. So highly recommend that one. And second, uh, Sigrid Kidana authored a post on the RStudio blog that is part of a forthcoming book called Deep Learning and Scientific Computing with RTorch. So look out for that. And the post is titled uh, Discrete Fourier Transform with Torch. And it gives a great under the hood view at Fourier transformations that is really well explained with some pretty simplistic uh, base R and ggplot to code and visualization, just to talk about how essentially we can do some transformations of you know discrete variables to better representations for deep learning algorithms without any information loss in between. So if you are a deep learning practitioner, that might be one of interest. Ooh, I'm definitely gonna take a look at that. Um... I have some fun projects that I'm thinking about next year with respect to, you might say, meta-analysis of this very podcast where I've heard some open source tooling that's wrapping with PyTorch to auto-generate transcripts. I wonder if I could retrofit something like that here. So, Very cool. As long as it doesn't transcribe our pre-recording conversations. Oh, that would be some fun training data, wouldn't it? <laughs> Maybe someday you all will get to hear it, but for now that's under wraps. But, <laughs> but of course, what's not under wraps is our weekly itself. You can find the issue every week or at least close to every week at rweekly.org. And there you'll find the current issue as well as the back catalog of the previous issues. And certainly we appreciate all of your support. So if you see a great resource that you'd like to see mentioned in the show, just give us a poll request and the curator for the week will be glad to put that into the issue. It's all easy, all marked down all the time. No, nothing fancy there. Just write what you like and we'll put it in. And also, yes, we are about to hit episode 100. So as I mentioned a few weeks ago, if you 
have gotten value from some of the great content you've heard Mike and I banter about or some of the resources we've been sharing in our weekly over the, you know, 99 episodes before this, please give us a shout. We'd love to showcase that. And how can you get in touch with us? Well, I am at the Rcast on Twitter, but I am going to announce I'm not just on Twitter anymore, friends. I am also on Mastodon, which is starting a little traction in the R community as far as social media enhancements. And I am I am at our podcast at podcastindex.social. Feel you give me a shout either way. But uh, Mike, where can they find you? Lots of places to reach us uh, for, for now. I am on Twitter as well, still at Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K. And uh, you can find me as well on MySpace at uh, <laughs> love, myspace.com slash love to snowboard or whatever my uh, old MySpace handle was. Uh, <laughs> I least, have not made it. To- <laughs> at least you were polite about it. I'm not sure what my handle was. You probably don't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> I have not made it to uh, Mastodon yet, but I am I am looking into it. So we will see what the future holds for social media. Yep, that's an interesting time for sure. We may have more to say about that in the not-too-distant future. But, um, well, I've blabbered enough. But uh, as always, thank you, Mike, for joining me on another great episode, the last, the last episode of the two-digit numbers. So a little mini milestone there. But we will be back with episode 100 of the R Weekly Highlights podcast, either next week or soon. We'll find out.